John chapter 17. You can turn there. This is the conclusion of the most famous prayer ever prayed in the history of the world. This is a prayer between Jesus and the Father. Theologians for centuries have called this the high priestly prayer because Jesus is coming before God the Father to pray for you, to pray for me. He's praying for his disciples, but as we're going to see, it it wasn't just for the disciples. It was for those who would come to believe in him because of his word. And here we are 2,000 years later, Four Oaks, as a living spiritual embodiment of what Jesus was praying even then. Just to kind of give us a run-up to this context, we've, we've spent some months now in what has been kind of traditionally called the upper room discourse. This is the last night of Jesus's life. And the, and the disciples entered this night with just so many expectations. They had such high hopes. This was to be the coronation of King Jesus. He was the appointed. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior to save Israel. He was riding in on that donkey. He was going to reign. They were going to sit on his right hand and his left hand. And he gathered them up at this last meal at the Last Supper for what, for what they knew, they just knew this was going to be the culmination of their life dreams. And then he drops the bomb on them. He tells them, it's not going to end that way. I'm, I'm, I came to do something that you don't understand. I didn't come to lead you into victory. I actually came to die. So I'm leaving you. And when I leave you, I'm going to be giving you my Holy Spirit. But, but you have an ongoing mission to accomplish in my stead. You're to take this gospel message to the world, but understand this won't be easy. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be dragged before the synagogue, kicked out of the synagogues, dragged before the tribunal. Some of you are even going to lose your very lives. And then he does something unexpected, at least unexpected for us Westerners, individualists, entrepreneurs in a time like this, when we face crisis, our immediate impulse is get working, get moving, let's fix this, let's get something going. But Jesus does, in fact, the opposite. He stops where he is on the road through the Kidron Valley to go to the, to the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he stops and he prays. And he prays. And we're like, that's so ineffectual, Jesus. That's so inefficient. There's, there's so much to do. There's a crisis at hand. <laughs> Come step, step up and help us fix this situation. And Jesus says, I'm doing for you the most important thing that I could be doing. I'm bringing you before the Father. And we saw last week that he prayed that God would keep them, preserve them, hold them up, carry them forth to the end. And now he has one final thing to pray, which might be somewhat surprising when we think about all the things that Jesus might pray for them at this moment. Think about this for yourself as you come in here today. What is one thing if Jesus were here, metaphorically, so to speak, we know he's here with us in his spirit. What is the one thing you would want Jesus to pray for you? Jesus prays. For them, he prays for us. And we're going to be in John 17, verses 20 through 26. We won't stand. We'll make this easy on, easier, I should say, on the kids today. So John 17, verse 20 through 20, 
7. Jesus is speaking. He's praying to the Father. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. In them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And chapter 18 just tells us when Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. And so this today ends the great high priestly prayer, this night in the upper room, and we'll continue to unpack that in the, in the weeks ahead. Guys, this, this passage is famously known, or this portion of the high priestly prayer is famously known as the great unity passage. And when we think about where we are culturally, here we, we're getting ready to head to, to the polls. Many of us on Tuesday, we're voting in midterm elections. We're, we're totally cognizant that this is a massively disunifying time culturally for us. That would be politically, but not just politically, socially, theologically, even in the greater body of Christ. Um, Personally, a lot of us come in here this morning feeling incredibly disunified, maybe, in significant areas of our life or in significant relationships or maybe maritally even. And Jesus is praying For a specific group of people, look in verse 20. He makes this really clear who he is praying for. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, he's praying for you in the midst of whatever disunity you might be experiencing Now, as we saw last week, one of the things that Jesus makes clear is that at least at this point, he's not praying for the world. And that should get our attention. He says this specifically to his disciples, to his people. He's not praying for the world because understand, we have have to understand something. Unity, apart from Jesus Christ and his word, is not ultimately possible. As we're going to see, unity, true unity, biblical unity, eternal unity, happens only in accordance with the Spirit of Christ given to his people through his word. And so this is, for Oaks, uniquely for us. We can't can't solve all of the problems out there. 
Not that we shouldn't try and be involved, and we should, and that's another sermon, but that's not today's sermon. Today's sermon is about the call for unity for the people of God. And so there, there, there's three things I want us to see in this, these seven verses. Number one, the problem of unity. Number two is the, is the path to unity. And number three is the purpose for unity. Why is God calling us to this? So let's look at the problem of unity. Now, if you were to identify a central request, like what is the one thing that Jesus is praying above all others for us this morning, you can find it. It's, it's, I think it's pretty obvious. You see it in verses 21, verses 22, verses 23. He says it several times. Look at verse 21. I'm praying that they may be, that, I'm sorry, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now, the reason that this has been called the great unity chapter is because unity or uni means singular. It means to be of one mind, to, to be of a similar or identical purpose. And so here Jesus is making it clear over and over again that this is the one thing that I pray for you, church, that just as I and the Father are one, you also likewise will be one with one another. Now, this passage has been sort of a launching off point many times historically for this call for what we would call ecumenical unity or external unity or organizational unity in the greater body of Christ. And, and, the, and the argument goes something like this. People just quit fighting about doctrine. Quit fighting about truth. Quit arguing Let's just love each other. You may have heard this, 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 this moniker, deeds, not creeds, right? Lowest common denominator theologically. Let's, let's reduce our emphasis on doctrine. Let's elevate our actions, the things that we do. Let's build the tent so big that no one is excluded that is the path to biblical unity. And I want to say clearly, there, there's much to commend ecumenical movements, organizational movements about unity in the church. That's not the point, though, of this passage. See, that sort of thinking is not what Jesus would define as biblical unity. That's not what he's talking about. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, listen, through their word. You see, Jesus has given a corpus of teaching to the apostles. And it is their job to communicate that body of teaching, what Jesus calls his words, to those who will come after, to the church that will follow behind them. That's what we hear Paul saying in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Timothy, the things that you've heard from me, 
in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who are also qualified to teach others. And what we've seen over and over that the marker for the people of God, for the people of God who are in Jesus Christ, the marker for them, the way that they are distinguished is by their adherence to the word, their love of the word, their, their pull to the word, their obedience to the word. And, and Jesus, we've seen it in this prayer, has given the disciples this, this responsibility of carrying forth the teaching. He says that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind, to remember, it's everything that I've taught you. So here we think about John. Guys, this is 60 years after the fact. He has, he, you, you just imagine Jesus stopping and praying this prayer, and the disciples are sort of gathered around. They're sort of witnesses. They're overhearing this prayer. How, how does John remember? How does John know? How can he recall this? Jesus makes that very clear. It's through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings these things to mind. What this tells us is that the Word of God is what sets the boundaries for the Christian faith. So listen to how Don Carson describes this. This is not simply, he says, a unity of love. It is a unity predicated on adherence to the revelation the Father mediated to the first disciples through his Son, the revelation they accepted and then passed on. Here's the takeaway statement under this point. Let me explain it a little bit. Here's the takeaway statement. Folks, there can be no true, lasting unity apart from truth. Because I, I'm thankful that we, I believe, are a fairly unified church. Um, I'm thankful to wake up in the morning with no pressing weight against my, against my chest that we are, that, that we're full of drama and discord. And now saying all that, I fully know if we were to keep you after the service today and serve you pizza and ask your opinion on a whole host of subjects, which we don't plan on doing, okay? I have no, I have, I know there would be tons of disagreement, tons of, I think this and I think that and wish we would do this and wish we would do that. But that doesn't mean we're just unified. The, re, the, the fundamental basis for our unity here at Forks Community Church is the fact that we have committed together to embrace the whole counsel of God. Specifically, as a member of Four Oaks Church, you affirm our statement of faith. We have an eldership that is unified theologically in terms of our message, in terms of our, our mission. There's a ton of stuff we don't agree about. Politically, socially, heaven knows sports, okay, all those things, still trying to get all those gators off the elder council. It's not working, okay? But our, our please understand this, our unity is not based merely off well-wishing or good intentions or being nice to each other, although all those things are super important, our unity as a church is based upon our mutual commitment to an agreed-upon standard of beliefs and faith. There can be no ultimate unity apart from that. That's what we... Now, we're going to get to this. There's a lot of things that mimic unity, but which really aren't. 
But fundamental biblical unity begins, ends with our mutual submission and commitment to the Word of God. Now, culturally, this is all backwards. Because that's, how not, that's not how unity is, is conceived of culturally. And we need, to, we need to think about this because this is the air we breathe. It's, it influences the way that we think about biblical unity. You can see this on the college campus. Increasingly, the university, and understand something, university, uni, what does that mean? Singular. One. So there was a time when, when almost every major institution, Ivy League school, university, center of higher learning, was founded upon the presupposition that all truth is God's truth. And that, and that we are in an endeavor to learn in a unified way how all of the areas of life, whether it's mathematics or the social sciences or science or biology or any of those things, all of them in some way purport to give us a clearer knowledge of who God is. That's why it's called uni, singular. But as you know, the last 40 years, that's not the assumption that we've been operating from. See, for the last 40 years... The way that unity has been pursued is to say, believe whatever you want. There there is no worldview that's superior to another. They're all equally valid. That's, That's been the moniker for the last 40, 50 years in higher education. And interestingly, the goal in all this, of course, is, is some sort of unity, some sort of common observance, some sort of common way of life. But in fact, what we've seen is that it's, it's only sought to destroy the very unity it was created to make. See, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a relativist culture, truth no longer determines what's right. What does? Power. Those in charge. That's why we see violence escalating on college campuses. That's why we see, I mean, free, free speech debate out the window because anything that would disrupt this fragile state of unity, quote-unquote, that we have is to be expunged, exterminated at all costs. See, that's not unity. That's conformity. That's coercion. That's, you can call it a lot of things, but it's not what Scripture refers to when we think about unity. So here's the unity problem. And I'm going to say this and we're going to move to the next point. Here's the unity problem. When we desire unity, which we should, we desire a good thing. But when we seek unity as the ultimate thing, as the most important thing, and subordinate everything else to unity, not only will we use, lose unity, we'll lose truth. See, unity is a great thing, but as a byproduct of a mutually agreed upon set of standards that we all submit ourselves to. And by the way, this doesn't just apply globally or nationally or to churches, but it also applies on the micro level relationally. Let me say something maybe particularly to the, to the men. Maybe you've had a few moments to think about your marriage as your wife's been away all weekend and 
How, how do you achieve unity in a marriage? That's, a, that's the question. How do you achieve unity in a marriage? See, you, you have to go back to your original vows. You have to go back to God's word. And you have to go back to the common vision, the common goal, the predetermined truths of what you committed to when you said, I do. What, you're, you're recommitting yourself to what marriage is. It's a mutual commitment to the truth. It's not a social construct. If it's a social construct, it can be changed tomorrow. What's to say that, that the nature of marriage cannot be changed tomorrow versus what it is today or versus what it was yesterday? There has to be a commitment to truthful disclosure. See, a lot of times, for unity's sake, quote-unquote, we won't rock the boat or we won't speak truth or we won't live transparently. Guys, that's, that's not unity. That's not unity. Unity has to be based upon truth. See, unity that Jesus is speaking here is, is, is way beyond external. Though there, there, there is an external unity coming, and we'll talk about that at the end. But Jesus says unity first must begin within your own heart. So that brings us to point number two, the path of unity. As the theological foundation of all unity is found in the nature of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, we are in deep, deep theological waters, the deep end of the pool. Whole books, um, discourses, sermons have been preached on participles in these verses. So it's going to be hard to do them complete justice. But let me just point out to you what God says is the theological foundation for any unity that you and I might experience as believers. Look at verse 20, 21. He says, you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you. Verse 22 and 23. We are one, Father. You're in me. So it goes both ways. Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. This is what people have called the, the union of Christ. This is the union of Father and Son. Both are in one another. Now, this is where the doctrine of the Trinity is just is, is so rich that on one hand, God is, God is so unified, God is of such one with himself that we can say he is one God, he is one being. While at the same time saying that this unity of the Godhead exists between the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Theologians love to speculate about things like this, but, but why is it that God, I'll, I'll use this terminology carefully lest I commit heresy and you hit the gong in the background, but I'm going to be careful here. Why must God exist as three persons? You see, when we say that God is love, love, to be love, has to have a reference point. It has to be shared. So when you say you love something, you, you're, you're in relationship to a person, you are, you, are, you are casting your affections upon that particular person. So for, for us to say that God is love that only makes sense 
if God has a love relationship within himself. See, that, that, that's, what, that's what Jesus is, is driving at here. He's saying that just as the Father is in me and I am in the Father and this relationship is called love, and, and this is just astounding when he says this, now, because I'm praying that just as we are one, you'll be one. You'll be one. And you may say, that's, that's impossible. <laughs> the, 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 these are incredible mysteries. Father, how are we to be one with one another as you are one with your Father? Well, here's a way to think about this. And this goes back to why the Spirit of Christ is foundational to any truly unified relationship. Look back at the text. It says, we are to be in him and he in us. See, the Spirit of Jesus is alive if you have placed your faith in him. It's alive in your heart. It's alive in your soul. And when the spirit of Jesus is alive in your heart, alive in your soul, he is conforming you to his image. As Paul would say, from one degree of glory to another. And when you relate to a fellow believer who also has the spirit of Christ, who's also conforming him or her, who's also transforming them from one degree of glory to another... As, as, as those two people are coming into a relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a friendship, whether it's in your community group, whether it's over lunch, there's something that takes precedence over in that relationship over everything else, over your sports affiliations, over, over your political views, over where you grew up or how much money you make. Or See, we have something in common as the people of God, that no other human beings in history have in common. It's the most important thing. It's the foundational thing. It's the spirit of Christ that's living within each of us. See, this is why sometimes we have to adjust our expectations when it comes to unity. You know, Thanksgiving dinner is coming up in two weeks. Two weeks. And every year, some of you have amazingly high hopes for that family time. And every year, those hopes are dashed over and over, right? You think, this is going to be the year. It's going to be so awesome. We're going to be unified, and crazy uncle's coming, and wayward son, and this person. We're all going to gather around the table, and we're just going to be perfectly together. We're going to hold hands like that Coke commercial, and we're going to teach the world to sing, okay? A song in perfect harmony. That's, and, and guess what? It never happens, it never happens. Because true lasting unity can't occur apart from the Spirit of Christ working in you, working in me together. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be civil. It doesn't mean that we, that we can't, on, on some level, get along. But we have to have the expect. We have to, we have to totally alter our expectations and realize where the Spirit of Christ is not, lasting unity will not either be. 
And I said that like in the old English version. I don't know how, I, I, could, I could restate that. You get what I'm saying, right? See, there, there, there's a lot at stake in this battle for unity. Because there's, 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 there's sin that wages war within our soul. But, but fundamentally, if we're not both committed to the Word of God, to the Spirit's life in each of us, if we're not growing in that, you know, because I, I, don't, I don't dispute that, I'm stick, stick with marriage for a minute, issues are hard and complex, and that there's mutual responsibility shared by both spouses for the problems in the marriage. But I was talking to a, a, a guy this, this week, and, and from all human perspective, this marriage is done. It, it's over. It is, you don't sense the spirit of Christ anywhere. There is no mutual giving and receiving. There is no humility. But it's also a point of hope to realize the only hope that marriage has, the only hope your marriage has, relationships have, is that you have two people mutually submitted to the word of God and the spirit of Christ and really challenge that man to think through what what is your fundamental commitment? So your fundamental commitment is not to your spouse, although it is, that's an important commitment. Your fundamental commitment is to Jesus. And, and, and that's where you have to put your stake in the ground. The path to unity is the path of the Spirit of Christ and His Word. The purpose of unity, and, this, and then we'll be done. The purpose of unity. Look in verses 21 and 23. And I just think, as I was thinking about this, this is such a great call for us as a church family. And thinking about the almost 30 years we've had as a church family, the unity that God has given us. It's a great reminder that God has not given us unity for the sake of unity. And look at verse 21. Why is he giving it to us? He said in verse 20, I'm praying for them. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, here's the for reason. So that, see verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 21, he repeats it again. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, it would be very easy to mistake the unity we experience here as a gift to merely be enjoyed for perpetuity. Because that's, that's how churches, good churches, great churches, unified churches, gospel-centered churches ultimately come to be not. Because they forget that God has given them unity for a reason, for a purpose. And verses 21 and 23 make it as crystal clear as can be, so that the world may know, so that the world may believe in me. That's why we, every time we're together, not only do we have to remind ourselves in the message of the gospel that Jesus died for you, then Jesus died for me, but we have to remind ourselves that Jesus died for sheep that are not yet of this fold. There, there are people in this city that belong to God but don't know it yet. And he's calling us as a 
church family as a witness, as a corporate witness, as a, as a per- personal witness in your own life, to remember that the unity he has given us is to find expression in the fact that we're to be unified in our message together, that we're to never forget that it's not all about us. It's not all about us. It's about a sheep, a people that are not yet part of this fold. Interesting, um, as the women were, are gathering over in, in Sandest, and Susan and I went over early to help get set up for the retreat, and, and we met um, the retreat speaker, which, which, we, which we know from, from way back, Carolyn McCauley. And as we talked to her, um, my guess is, there's a lot that we probably don't have in common. When I say I guess, that's pastor speak for we don't have a lot in common, right? We live in different areas and have different backgrounds, and I'm sure we have a difference or two politically here and there. But what made that time so rich as we, as we prayed for her and for her was the unity we had in the gospel that she was there to promote and teach and communicate a message based upon the gospel to our women and that we were in this with her together. And guys, that's what we're all about here. That's what we're all about here. Unity is important for the sake of the body because disunity distracts from our mission. Guys, God has given us an incredible stewardship. God has given us a great, great resources, but with that comes much responsibility. Because Jesus does issue a final prayer and promise in verse 24, and we're going to end with this. You may say, but Pastor Paul, it's so hard to keep going. Because what you're telling me is that in some situations, in some relationships, in some circumstances, unity is not possible. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying apart from the Spirit of Christ, apart from God awakening hearts, changing hearts. That's exactly what I'm saying. But Jesus gives us a great promise in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. For Oaks, there's going to be a time there's going to be a season where the world will be united. It will be an organizational, hierarchical, structural unity as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming when we will all be unified under the banner of King Jesus. But in the meantime, we labor, we pray, we pursue peace in our relationships Maybe for some of us, some, of, some in this talk, this sermon, an application point is, God, where have you, where have I forgotten why I'm doing this? Where, relationally, maritally, with my kids, where have, I, where have I lost sight of where real unity lies? Maybe I've just, maybe I've been so focused on trying to make my spouse into who I think they need to be for me that I've forgotten that the most fundamental level of unity happens as we're communing together in the spirit of Christ by the word of God. Maybe there's some broken relationship God has 
called you to pursue. Remember Paul says, as much as it's up to you, live at peace with all men. As much as it's up to you. Where the Spirit speaks, obey. As we follow King Jesus, who died so that we might be unified with him for eternity. Let's pray.